All right, with that, I just want to invite Pastor Dave up. I'm really grateful for him taking on uh, the sermon for us this week. Thanks, Pastor Dave. Thanks so much, uh, Pastor Wilson, for giving me the opportunity once again to to speak God's word, and I'm so excited to be here. Um, You wouldn't believe it. I have been cooped up at home, and I've been following the rules, being a good citizen, and quarantining myself, and so I've been around my family, uh, my immediate family, and just being here, you know, with uh, the few Renew family that's here just reminds me how much I miss you guys, and uh, how much I want things to go back to normal so we can joke around and talk and hang out and eat, and I just can't wait for that time, but for now, we have to do what we have to do. Uh, You know, I want to get into the Word of God with you uh, this morning. And if you would take your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, 1 Kings chapter 17. You know, as a pastor, the number one subject that people want to talk to me about is God's will. They want to talk about it. They want me to pray over it. They want counsel in the area of God's will. What is God's will for my life? You know, I I have young adults or college students ask me, you know, is the person I'm with now... Is this the person that God wants me to marry in the future? Or does God want me to move to this new city or this state or even this new country? Or is this a new career change from God? Does God want me to take this job that is just here and is just uh, something that um, is open to me? Or will God open this door? I've been dreaming about it. I've really wanted to to enter in. Is God the one that's opening this door? Or is this a specific opportunity, an open door that God wants me to go into? Will God intervene and help me with this problem that I have in my life? And you know, these are very natural questions to ask. And believe me, I count it a privilege to be able to walk with people through this. Because as Christians, we all want to know what God's will is for our lives. And as a pastor, the number one truth that I've come to understand about God's will is that God's will is not a location. God's will is not a vocation. God's will is not an expectation. You know, God's will is not a location. It's not about moving to an area or a region. God's will is not really about a geographic destination. God's will is not about a vocation. It's not about becoming an engineer or a doctor or an actor. It's not about career success or career goals or accomplishments. God's will is really not about an occupation. God's will is not about an expectation. It's not about that American dream that you've been fantasizing about, that master plan that you've been working on all your life for that spouse and that house and those cars and those kids and that vacation and those retirement plans, and that legacy. God's will is not really about your expectations. As a pastor, the number one truth that I've come to understand about God's will is that God's will is a relationship. It's a living, deep, personal relationship with Him. It's walking ever so closely with Him in our everyday lives. And if you're in a right relationship with God, then you'll be in the right location because God's going to direct you there. 
if you're in a right relationship with God, then you'll have the right vocation. Because you'll be in whatever he has for you right now. And if you're in a right relationship with God, you'll fulfill his expectations. Far above and beyond what you've planned. He will build your house. He will provide your spouse. He will secure your legacy. And it will have eternal significance to it. You see, God desires a relationship with you. And isn't that the whole purpose for your life? The whole reason for your existence is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what all the catechisms and all the confessions say. That the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, that's the biblical perspective. is to see God's will as a constant, consistent, close relationship with Him. And this is so important. It is an important reminder because of the state that we're in. We're in a COVID-19 pandemic. And if you're anything like me, this coronavirus crisis has brought great stress and concern on your life. I've been watching news feed after news feed. I've been reading news articles after news articles. I'm a little obsessive and I have a researching type of personality. And so I've been grabbing everything that I can about COVID-19. And you know what it's done? It's made me very aware of the physical, emotional, social, financial effects that this crisis has been unleashing, not only in Southern California, but in the world. And this constant avalanche of information has triggered a torrent of questions in my mind. Will I get coronavirus? How sick will I get? Will the hospitals have enough oxygen and ventilators if I need it? Is my immediate family going to be okay? How about my parents and my in-laws? They're all over 80. They all have pre-existing conditions. What about them? What about my church community? What about my friends? How about the financial support that we're going to be living in a depression, it looks like? You see, the temptation to live in the news produces a fear that can set deep in our hearts. An insidious perspective that can fester in our minds. In a time of overwhelming crisis, we, it can demoralize our souls. It can discourage us from standing firm and secure in our faith. It can keep us from enduring the trials that will doubtless come. Right? A time of overwhelming crisis can make us doubt our God, to question his existence, to find fault with his attributes, to critique his motives and purposes. Does God really love me? I don't see it. Does God even care about humanity? We're going through this. God doesn't have a plan, does he? And this time of overwhelming crisis can also make us detach from others. It can, we can isolate ourselves from the body of Christ, the very family that we need in a time of crisis. And it, we become tempted then also to isolate ourselves and become selfish and self-centered, not caring about the rest of the world. At a time of overwhelming crisis, you might ask, what is God's will? And as a pastor, the truth I want to share with you is God's will is not about a location. It's not about a vocation. It's not about an expectation. It's not about fear of devastation or depression or infection or inflation. The number one truth that God wants to give you this morning is that his will is a relationship. It's a living, deep, personal, consistent relationship with God. 
Very simply, God's will is a relationship in real time. You know, the question that we want to look at is, what does God's relational will look like? And the answer is found in one word, the word providence. That's what we're going to look at this morning, the word providence. Because providence is the guidance and provision of God on our lives. That's the definition. If you're taking notes, write that down. Providence is the guidance and provision of God on our lives. It's God's will personalized to you, his people. It's God's will expressed specifically to you, his children. And you see, the most fundamental way that we can talk about God's will in relationship with us is in the area of providence. You might say, well, I've never heard of this word ever before. This is a theological term that I'm unaware of. Can I share with you, providence is one of the major themes in the Bible. Story after story illustrate to us the truth of providence. And we're going to look at one of these stories this morning. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we're going to look at providence in the life of Elijah, one of my favorite Bible characters. And we're going to examine four principles of providence. Four principles of this term providence, and we'll be done. Let's look in verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Let's, let's stop right there. I want you to notice this is our introduction to Elijah. He abruptly, abruptly excuse me, comes into the court of Ahab, the king of Israel, and announces judgment. Because of the sin and idolatry of Israel, led by Ahab and his pagan queen Jezebel, a catastrophic crisis has come to the region. A world-changing, people-shaking, economy-draining drought that will devastate everyone in this region. And I want you to notice that this crisis is no respecter of persons. It affects everyone, including the man of God who issues this. I think that's interesting. That in the midst of this crisis, we see God's relationship with Elijah through this crisis. Let's look in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. Now in this crisis, God guides Elijah to Kirith, where he would provide for him. This is providence. Where God guides, he always provides. And I want you to notice the vehicle of his providence. It's his word. And this is the first principle. If you're taking notes, write this down. Providence always starts with God's word. Let me say it again. Providence always starts with God's word. You see, God always directs us by the revealed truth of his word. And God's will comes through his word. That's why if you want to know God's will for your life, you must be in tune with his word in your life. Verse 1, look at it. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. You see, you cannot build a strong relationship with God apart from his word. You know, my devotional life has become so fruitful during this time of quarantine. And it's even more and it's better than I even imagined. And you know why that is? Because what else do I have to do, right? Before I had all these excuses, I had all these things I need to do. And then God has placed me in a place where, you know what, I have all the time in the world to meet with him. And my prayer life and uh, my, my Bible study has been, just been amazing. 
And I've shared this with you before, but really when we talk about a devotional life, we're talking about those two elements, prayer and studying the word. Why? Because that is communication with God. Prayer is us, is uh, communicating with him, right? It's adoration. It's reflection. It's, uh, it's, it's um, petition. It's all those things of us communicating to God. Now, the Bible is God communicating with me or with us. And that's important. And you know, the better I get at prayer and the word, the deeper and closer I get with God. Now, that's very obvious, right? But how many of us, we practice that in our lives knowing that? Well, you might say, I'm not much for reading. I don't like to read. So I'm just going to pray and not read the Bible. And then I'll know God's will. Well, let me ask you a question. How can you know God apart from his word? Remember, if prayer is us talking to God and the scriptures is God talking to us, you're only doing half of it when you're not, when you're not getting into the word. See, you can't know God apart from his word. What we know about God, his attributes and character, his ways, his plans, what he desires, what he detests, uh, his purposes, his law, his judgments, his grace, his gospel, they're all known through his word. And that's why cults and heresies result from ignoring the revealed word of God. Where someone just says, you know, I prayed and something came into my mind. Or I just thought about this. And I think this is God's uh, word for me. Well, if you don't compare it to the word of God and you don't look at it under the revealed truth of God, then we're going to be in big trouble. So let's look. Elijah listened for the word of the Lord to guide and provide for him in his life. The second principle is tied to the first principle. If you're taking notes, write this down. Providence always comes step by step. Providence always comes step by step. Proverbs 16 and verse 9. In their hearts, people plan their course, but it is the Lord who directs their steps. I want you to notice the pattern of providence in Elijah's life. In chapter 17 and verse 2, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In chapter 17 and verse 8, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him. In chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Chapter 18 and verse 31, the word of the Lord had come saying. Chapter 19 and verse 9, the word of the Lord came to him. Chapter 21 and verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. In chapter 21 and verse 28, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Look at it. Elijah is led step by step by step. It is the Lord who directs their steps. From the palace... The word of the Lord comes and tells him to go somewhere. And then he goes to Kareth. And it's at Kareth that the word of the Lord comes to him again. And then he goes to Zarephath. It's at Zarephath that the word of the Lord comes to him again. And he goes to Mount Carmel. You see, Elijah follows step by step by step by step. He didn't know about the revival in chapter 18 when he was in the crisis in chapter 17. He had to follow one step at a time. Psalm chapter 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is really awesome imagery. I love it. Because there was no electricity in the ancient world. At night it got super dark. And so they had to use these ancient lamps for light. 
They didn't have LED flashlights. They didn't have LED back then. So this lamp would only give enough light for the next step that a person took in the dark. The psalmist is saying God's word is a light that shows me light for the next step, one step at a time. You see, God leads us one step at a time. He leads us one day at a time. Remember, God's will is a relationship. It's a day-by-day relationship with Him. And that's one of the greatest spiritual principles to learn, to live day-by-day, not week-by-week, Not month by month, not year by year. Some of us, that's how we live. We're supposed to live day by day. The psalmist says it this way. In Psalm uh, 61 and verse 8, we are daily called to perform our duties, to do what we're supposed to do. In Psalm 68 and verse 19, we're to daily praise the Lord who daily provides our needs. In Psalm 86 and verse 3, we're to daily walk in fellowship with God. In Psalm 88 and verse 9, we're to daily live in intimacy with the Lord. In Psalm 90 and verse 12, we're to daily manage our time and not to waste the day that we've been given. You know, Matthew 630, uh, Matthew 6.33 says it really well. I know Wilson gave an amazing message. Uh, I have to say that because he's right here, okay? But he gave an amazing message. I, I really mean it. He gave an amazing message uh, about not to worry uh, a couple weeks ago. And so I don't want to belabor anything that he said, but in verse 33, what he didn't touch on, I want to give to you. It says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own challenges. Today's trouble is enough for today. Did you get that? I'm not supposed to worry about tomorrow. I'm not supposed to worry about what's in the future. God's got it under control. I'm just supposed to faithfully live out today. And that's so important. It's a principle that we have to learn. You know, when I was called to ministry, I was a teenager. Uh, What was special about my calling, and and I I think it was very special, of course, to me, was that when I came to know the Lord as Savior, uh, I, I felt like I was called to ministry. And so I was a teenager. Now, I am so glad that God, when he called me into ministry, didn't take me somewhere and show me my whole life. And say, you know what, Dave, now that you're in ministry, let me share with you all the bad things that are going to happen to you. You're going to get rejected in in, uh, ministry with uh, pastors and leaders. They're going to slander you. You're going to go through a couple church splits. You're going to go through a power uh, power plays, and you're going to be betrayed by the very friends that you thought you had. You're going to go through poverty because, you know, that's that's part of it. And you're going to end up you know, going through all these different things and you're going to get some depression there. You know, if God would have showed me everything, I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I really wouldn't. I'm so glad that God didn't do that. God tells us to fulfill today and trust him for tomorrow. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. You might say, I don't know the next step. I just know what's in front of me. I'm a human being, right? And so God says, trust me. I'm in control. I'm that GPS, if you will. I'm that God-positioning satellite that if you walk with me one day at a time and submit to me every day, then I will direct your path. I'll tell you what turns to take. I'll take you on the road 
that is really going to help you in your life. Now, the third principle we want to look at is that providence always has a refining purpose. Providence always has a refining purpose. Let's look in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. Now I want you to drop down to verse 5. It says, So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. Drop down again to verse 7, would you? It says, Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Zidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. And so Elijah went to Zarephath. Now I want you to notice in this time of crisis, there are three places that God directs the man of God to go. Number one, Kirith. Number two, Zarephath. And number three, Carmel. Now I want you to look first of all at Kirith. Do you know that Kirith has a very... A significant meaning to it. The word actually means to cut, to cut off or to cut out. It's this idea of an artist creating a sculpture. It's like uh, Michelangelo's David. That's probably the most well-known sculpture, right, in the world. If Michelangelo, the artist, were to take this block of marble, this huge block of marble, and he would say, you know what, my job as the sculptor is to free this masterpiece from the marble. So what does he do? He takes hammer and chisel, and he begins to cut off, to careth the big blocks that are unnecessary. He cuts out, and maybe he takes a smaller chisel and starts uh, forming the eyes and the nose and the mouth and the different muscle striations. He starts cutting out pieces that are unnecessary, that distract. Right? What is he doing? He is curating that. He is freeing the masterpiece from the marble. Can I share with you? That's what God does with us in Kareth. As we wait on him, it is at Kareth that he cuts off the sins and the idols and the immaturity. He cuts out the vanity. He cuts out the distractions and the impediments of our lives. You know, during this time of quarantine... I was at 12 a.m., I still remember it. Uh, Chrissy sent out a message. Chrissy, thank you so much for this message. She gave it to our Renew family, and I, I wrote this down. It was, it was really powerful to me. This is what she said, quote, In these three short months, just like he did with the plagues of Egypt, God has taken away everything that we worship. God says, you want to worship athletes? I will shut down stadiums. You want to worship musicians? I will shut down civic centers. You want to worship actors? I will shut down movie theaters. You want to worship money? I will collapse the stock market. You abuse your freedom? I will lock you down. Maybe we need to take this time of isolation from all the distractions of the world and have a personal revival where we focus on only one thing that really matters in this world, and that's Jesus in Jesus alone. And for me, that hit me like a ton of bricks because that was my problem. You know, not that I wasn't worshiping God and spending time with God, but I had so many distractions. Athletes, right? Sports, uh, music. Uh, I had all these things. And what God was doing in this time of quarantine 
was he was telling me to draw closer to him. See, that's Kareth. Number two, I want you to notice Zarephath. Zarephath means refinery. It means to refine by fire. It was an actual Phoenician town known for smelting metals. And metals, precious ones like gold and silver, were taken to Zarephath and refined by fire to draw out the purest form. And it takes a lot of heat to make the purest, most precious metals. You know, Elijah did not want to go to Zarephath. You might say, well, how do I know this? Well, first of all, it was very difficult. From Kareth to Zarephath is 80 miles away. Without food and water, there's no way that he'd want to do that. It was very difficult. It was very humiliating that he'd have to beg food from a Gentile widow woman, probably the poorest uh, person in the poorest kind of caste. Here, this is Elijah, the Israelite man of God, and he's begging from a Gentile widow woman. How humiliating he must have felt, right? It was very uncomfortable. Imagine trusting daily just enough flour, just enough oil for God to come through so that they could survive. You know, Elijah didn't want to go to Zarephath, but the Bible says that he obeyed the process of Zarephath. Remember, God's will is a relationship. His goal is to sanctify you, and he will guide you to Kareth to be stripped. He will guide you to Zarephath to be refined. For what purpose? Well, the third place that that he uh, was drawn to or led to was Carmel. You know what Carmel means? It means fruitfulness and abundance. Carmel was the place where revival occurred. It was the very place where God used Elijah to bring the people of Israel back to himself. It was here that the people repented of their sin and idolatry. And the Bible says, if I shut up the heavens that there be no rain, but if my people will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. And guess what? This was the place after three and a half years that after their repentance, God brought rain. See, providence has a refining element to it. Without the refining, there is no revival. Without the process, there is no power. And that's the reason why we have Kareths and Zarephaths, why we have Red Seas and wildernesses and deserts. That's the reason why we have crises in our life, that God is training and strengthening you in these things to be the abundant, fruitful person that he wants you to be. The last principle I want to give you is that providence always involves the supernatural. Okay? Providence always involves the supernatural. Let's look in verse 3. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is providence. And I absolutely love this passage. You see, when God guides, he always provides, and many times he'll do it supernaturally. Now, you might ask this question as you read this, why ravens? I mean, of course this was a miracle. We understand that. But why? And that's why I love this truth. It's so enjoyable for me uh, to look this up. Ravens were considered in the Bible to be unclean birds. And the reason why they were unclean and to be avoided at all costs by Israelites 
was because they're scavengers. They're always around dead bodies and decaying flesh, right? And so the nature of a raven, uh, and if you ever watch Animal Planet, I love watching Animal Planet or Discovery Channel or anything like that, right? You realize that ravens are very interesting. Ravens are thieves. They love to steal food from other ravens and other things. You've heard the term ravenous or ravenous. It's because they're greedy. They're thieves. Not only that, but they're also selfish. They're known to toss out their own young out of their nest if there's too many, or if they get sick of them, right? They'll just throw out their young if it benefits them. They're very selfish. They're ill-tempered. They fight with other ravens. They try to kill each other. That's why I hate the Baltimore Ravens. I'm a Steeler <laughs> fan, so I just wanted you to know that, okay? Ill-tempered. But God uses the raven to feed Elijah. Isn't that amazing? That's a miracle. God has to change their nature to nurture they had to, God had to change them to care for and to feed fresh food to the man of God. That tells us God has a sense of humor, right? If I were God, and I'm not, of course, right? But if I were God, I would have sent some, you know, amazingly rich person with a lot of food. That would have made sense. Go to Kareth and give him food. Not God. He changes the nature of a dirty, selfish, ill-tempered bird to feed fresh food. He's not throwing out, like, you know, decaying flesh to Elijah, right? He's eating good food. See, I want to ask, God uses ravens to show Elijah that he's doing it. Why ravens? Is because God wants to show that he's God. Can you identify God's ravens in your life? Has God used the unlikely, unfamiliar, unique means and ways to show you that he cares for you? You see, God loves to use ravens to show you his supernatural providence. I'd love to hear an amen right now. Amen. Oh, amen. thanks. Amen. Thanks. Woo-hoo. I'm sure you guys are amening over there, okay, in your rooms. All right. <laughs> I want to close with this. I have so many faith stories. I have some pretty unique faith stories, but there's one that I just love. It's a very you know, simple faith story, but I think it'll illustrate what I'm going to say. You know, the first couple years of our marriage, uh, you know, Joanne and I, both of us were in seminary, and both of us were very poor. You know, Joanne didn't have a job at the time. She was going to seminary. We were living on grants and the, the meager money that I was making as a, as, a, as a college pastor, and so we didn't really have any money. And I remember I was asked in that time to come and speak at Michigan State University's KACF. That's a parachurch group, right? And they asked me to come out to Michigan State and speak for them. Now, the things that were going on at the time, and because we were poor and we didn't have money, I wasn't going to accept it at all. But we decided, my wife and I decided to pray. And as we were praying, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4 kept coming into my mind. It was my verse of calling when God called me into ministry. And it said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And what God was telling me that time was, you know, I want you to go. This is what I've called you to do. This is what I've ordained you for. And so we believe we received a green light to go. So we went to Michigan. And long story short, we had an amazing time. There were about 30 collegians there, no leaders. They had had no leaders that whole year. And so they had nobody, you know, to take care of them, to direct them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so right away, Joanne and I, we commandeered that whole retreat. From beginning to end, we, we, we led it and we took care of it. 
And it was just an amazing time. God used it in a powerful way. So at the airport going home, I was given this big manila envelope. And it was the time when they didn't have all these safety protocols and protections. And so college students would come in, and they gave me this big manila envelope. And I remember when they left, Joanne and I opened it up, and there was hundreds of dollars in $1 bills in this manila envelope, right? You would think that they robbed a 7-Eleven or something. You know, there were so many dirty, kind of crinkled up bills, but they were all pretty much $1 bills. Maybe a couple fives and tens, but it was hundreds of dollars in $1 bills, you know? And, you know, as we sat there, we started to realize these collegians had scraped up all the money that they had to give it to us. What College people have no money, and we knew that. But they wanted to bless us with money and encouragement. And so both of us, we ended up in the airport crying because we weren't expecting anything. And that was the time when I, I didn't know what an honor, honorarium really was. And I just thought we'd just go and obey God and, you know, we weren't going to get anything. And they gave us this money. And so we were so, so excited. On the plane, right, there were a lot of encouragement cards in there. And we started opening up the encouragement cards, what they said. And there was a particular white envelope. I opened it up. I thought it'd be an encouragement card, like so many that we received. But when I opened it up, there were two crisp $100 bills in an envelope in there. I'm like, wow, more money, right? And we're looking at it and stuff. And there was a letter that was given with those, uh, that money. And this is what the letter said. It said, God told me to give this money to you. I was robbed this past week, so I don't have much money. But as I was praying, God told me to give the remainder I have as an offering for you coming to Michigan. I know this is weird. It's weird for me too. Don't try to find out who this is. Don't try to give it back to me. God wants you to have this. He loves you guys, and he wants you to know that. Signed anonymous. And I remember on the plane, we cried even more, right? You know what these Michigan collegians were? They were ravens. They were providential ravens. And it helped me to know God's providence. You see, God wants to be supernatural in your life. Providence will lead you to a place where he will reveal himself in amazing ways, in mysterious ways. He wants to be God in your life. He wants you to see that he's doing it. In the quietness of your own hearts, in the rooms that you're in, I want you to just take a moment in this time of crisis, I want to ask, would you commit to this perspective? Would you submit to the providence of God that we've been talking about? It will change your attitude and your outlook on life. Providence will help us to understand that you're God's child. And just like Elijah, he wants to know, will you trust him to work out his plan? in your life. I'm going to give you some time right now in the quietness of your hearts to meditate on that fact. we just ask that you would 
bring our souls to a place of rest. That we get to rest in you in the middle of a drought, in the middle of a famine. We get to find you provide for us, find you refine us. We get to find you. And I pray that during this season, Lord, that all of us would seek you and find you. That we would long for you, Lord. I just pray over our church that you would grow us, um, give us this thirst for you, that all the things that have been taken away in all the ways that they have filled us and, and we feel vacant, we ask that you would replace those things in our lives. That you would replace the joy that we've lost from our hobbies. You would replace the intimacy that we've lost from being able to hug and see our friends face to face. You would replace the security that we found in stocks or our job. That you would be the one that fills our hearts and our lives um, in the middle of this crisis. In the middle of this drought. Thank you so much for Pastor Dave and for his the word that he gave us today, and, and but we need your word every day. And I pray that what we receive from him through your word would only give us a thirst for more, a thirst to hear your voice every day, every moment, to want you, Lord. We're so grateful for our time, and, and we love you. And we thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.